0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to gather with you this morning to praise our God who is perfect in justice. My name is Kelton. I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here of Stafford Baptist Church. If I haven't had the the pleasure of meeting you yet, I'd invite you to, to stick around afterwards, hang out, get to know us after our service ends. We continue our study this morning of the book of Psalms, picking up right where we left off last week. So if you would, please open with me in your Bibles to the 109th Psalm, Psalm 109. You can find that Psalm on page 508 of the Bibles provided for you there in the pew rack, page 508. You'll be helped, as always, to keep your Bibles open in your lap this morning, as I'll be referring back to it often, even after we read it. Our our sermon text this morning is somewhat unique. It is what is known as an imprecatory psalm. If you're not familiar with that word, imprecatory, it describes a prayer that calls down curses, and I would say that Psalm 109 is the most imprecatory of the psalms. It, it contains more than 20 curses on the evil enemy. One of history's greatest preachers, Charles Spurgeon, felt the weight of this psalm. He wrote, commenting on it, Truly, this is one of the hard places of Scripture, a passage which the soul trembles to read. Yet as it is a psalm unto God and given by inspiration, it is not ours to sit in judgment upon it, but to bow our ear to what the Lord, sorry, what God the Lord would speak to us therein. So brothers and sisters, we have one of the hard places of Scripture before us today. But Spurgeon reminds us that every word is given by God's inspiration and is profitable. It's for our training in righteousness. Our commitment as a church is to receive the whole counsel of God, even in its hard places. So we come this morning to Psalm 109, how to pray when evil attacks. Psalm 109, how to pray when evil attacks. Evil is a present reality. I need to only mention the names of Highland Park, of Ivaldi, of Buffalo, names that that only two months ago would have been very different, would have very different significance to us. I need only mention the date, September 11th. However misguided the perpetrators might have been, we must describe their actions as evil. Or or maybe when you think of evil, your stories are more personal. When you think of the reality of evil, you don't have to think of what's happened out there But what's happened to you, what you've suffered, or what those closest to you have experienced? Evil has attacked home. And evil, whether out there or at home, has the ability to profoundly shape those who suffer from it. Many don't survive. Those who do undergo a permanent transformation. We don't come out of the experience of evil The same people that went into it. Some might fall into despair. Hope, another of the casualties of evil. Others of us might be overwhelmed by anger, aroused to oppose evil. Well, our passage this morning is one man's response to to evil. Great evil committed against him. David, the author of our psalm, is experiencing the attacks of evil men. And what is his response to it? How does God's word shape us as we think about the experience of evil? Well, our psalm this morning will teach us three truths about evil and our response to it. First, you can suffer evil for doing good, second, evil deserves proportional punishment. And third, God acts against evil because he is good, not because we are. I encourage you to look for those truths as we read in a moment, but before, it's all the more important for us to humble ourselves in prayer and ask for the Lord's help in our study of his word. So please, would you pray with me as we come to God's word? O God of our praise, we ask you to be not silent. Lord, as we come to your word, that you would speak to us. Lord, we confess that we are poor and needy. Lord, poor and needy in the face of evil, unable to stop, unable to save. Lord, we pray this morning as we read your word that you would vindicate your own holiness, your own hatred of evil, not only your ev- the evil out there, but even the evil in our hearts. So, Father, we pray that you would open our ears, that you would speak for your servants. Listen, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, read with me the imprecatory prayer of David in Psalm 109. Hear the word of God. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity him, his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sins of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O God my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. The word of the Lord. What is the message of this song in one condensed thought? Well, it might be this, our main idea today. Wait for the Lord's righteous judgment on evil enemies. Wait for the Lord's righteous judgment on evil enemies. This psalm, once the the private prayer of the King David, was, was penned into a song for public worship. That that all of Israel and, and we too this morning might learn how to respond when evil attacks. Its message, one last time, wait for the Lord's righteous judgment on evil enemies. We are going to study this psalm by looking at three truths it teaches about evil. Three truths about evil. First, you can suffer evil for doing good. That in the first five verses, you can suffer evil for doing good. Second, evil deserves proportional punishment. That in the middle, verses 6 through 20, evil deserves proportional punishment. And finally, at the end, third, God acts against evil because he is good, not because we are. God acts against evil because he is good not because we are. Three truths about evil this morning, saints. You can suffer evil for doing good. Evil deserves proportional punishment. And God acts against evil because he is good, not because we are. We'll conclude after those three truths with two helps in the face of evil. Well, let's start with our first truth about evil. In the first five verses, saints, you can suffer evil for doing good. One of the hardest realities of evil is that you can suffer evil for doing good. Maybe, maybe you know that from your own experience. But it is certainly the experience of David, the message of the first five verses of our psalm. You can see that, that David is the author of this psalm there in the superscription, the little note at the top of the psalm. It's important for us to note that David is the author for a number of reasons, but, but first because we know that David was not a vindictive man. Certainly, David was a sinner, but he is also called a, a man after God's own heart. These are not the ravings of a man of malice, but these aren't just the words of David, as the superscription says. When Peter quotes this psalm in Acts 1, he says that the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. So David here in this psalm speaks inspired scripture for us to hear the voice of God. And and the voice of God is, is in fact what David is after. In verse 1, his request, be not silent, O God of my praise. You know, when, when God speaks, it's as good as done. God created everything by his word. A word from God is all a believer needs. And this text this morning is, saints, a word from God for us, inspired by the Spirit. So I would encourage you here at the start to be ready to hear its truth and take heart as he speaks. David, though, is experiencing God's silence. God's silence when evil men speak. After the requests in verse 1, verses 2 through 4 describe the mouths, the the tongues, the, the words of evil men. David calls them wicked, deceitful, lying, hating, attacking, and accusing It doesn't seem that they were taking physical action against David, but but they were assaulting him verbally, filled with lies. Let that sink in. What is maybe the most strong, imprecatory psalm is not against murderers, adulterers, terrorists, but men who lie and curse Church, there is so much power in the tongue. Your words reveal your heart. We don't know what kinds of lies or accusations they're making against David, but but what has prompted their behavior? Well, I count in these verses four different ways that tell us that their attacks are totally unjustified. Totally unjustified. First, he says simply, in verse 3, look there, they attack me without cause. He has done nothing to deserve their abuse, he says. In verse 4, he says that they accuse him in return for my love. In verse 5, they do this evil in reward for his good. And again, hatred for his love. That's four clear statements all saying that he has done nothing wrong and more than that, that he has done only good to them. Notice even in verse 4, all saying that, that he has not only done good but, but in return for their attacks, he gives himself to prayer. I give myself to prayer. His love and and desire to good do to them is, is tested by their attacks and proved genuine as he turns to prayer. You might think of Jesus' genuine love too, praying on the cross for those who had crucified him. Or, or Moses interceding for his sister Miriam after she made unjust accusations against him. In Numbers chapter 12, Church, this is the consistent testimony of Scripture from Moses to David to Jesus. You can suffer evil for doing good. It is much more than David being attacked simply unprovoked. He had loved them and done good to them and continues to pray for them. This leads us to consider if their hate maybe wasn't directed to, only to David, but also to David's God. In another of David's imprecatory psalms, he says this, The reproaches of those who reproach you, God, have fallen on me. Reproaches are, are insults. Those who wanted to insult God have insulted David. So, it, so in our psalm, it, it may be that those who wanted to attack God attack his servant, David. David. And just as it was with David, so it may be with you, saint. The apostle Peter wrote to a church facing verbal attacks. He reminds them and us in his first letter, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. So maybe I should have put our first point more strongly. Not only can you suffer evil for doing good, Peter says you have been called to it. More precisely, you have been called to endure when you do good and suffer. You should Saint, expect to suffer evil and harm for doing good in the name of Jesus. You should expect to suffer evil and harm for doing good in the name of Jesus. This is how twisted the reality of evil is. I am sure you can think of examples from your own life. When you did good, when you loved and served others... To receive hatred in return. Does God seem silent to you? That lies and deceit swirl while God does nothing? Well, the example of David and the message of Peter is to endure, saints. To continue. This is how Christ was treated. It is enough He teaches us for a disciple to be like his teacher. Keep loving and and doing good, devoting it to prayer. And especially pray that God would act in justice, giving to evil what it deserves. Our second truth about evil this morning, what does evil deserve? Evil deserves proportional punishment. Evil deserves proportional punishment. That in verses 6 through 20. You might feel, as, as I did, as we read some of these verses, that we need all of our faith and humility to accept them as the voice of inspired scripture. This section includes well over 20 imprecations, 20 curses, invoking supernatural power to inflict punishment. Some of them are very hard to read. We won't go through every line because the point is their cumulative effect. Their point, I think, is to teach us that evil deserves proportional punishment. This is a call for God to act in justice. You can notice it from the very start. Look at me. Look with me at verse 6 again. Verse 6. David calls on God to appoint a wicked man against him. That's verse 6. The image in verse 7 is is a court. He is being tried and obviously being found guilty. But but notice the proportionality of what David is asking there in verse 6. Remember, in in verse 2, David called this man wicked. Right? So here in verse 6, he's asking that the wicked would himself face a wicked man. The wicked himself face a wicked man. Or maybe this, three times... In this psalm, Paul or sorry, David calls this opponent an accuser. Not only is he wicked, he's an accuser. So also here in verse 6, let an accuser stand at his right hand. He's asking that the accuser would himself face an accuser. Right here in verse 6, David wants him to receive in return exactly what he himself is and gives. Wicked for wicked, accuser for wicked for the accuser. But of course, in this court, verse 7, he would be found guilty because he really is. It would be a just verdict for this man. And so justice demands in verse 8 that his days be few. David is praying for a swift end to his life. The second half of verse 8 just restates that in a different way. He wants his, his office, his position of leadership to be emptied by his death so that another man must take it. You know that's justice, right? That, that evil deserves death. Sins are the wages. Sorry, death is the wages of sin. Sure, in, in our courts, courts in this world, our courts' lying speech does not deserve the death penalty. But in the justice of God's court, it does. God has said from the beginning, disobedience to his commands deserves death. So in verse 8, God, uh, David is simply asking for nothing more than what his enemies deserve. But can we say the same of verses 9 through 14? 14. Now it's not just the evil accuser, but David brings his children and wife into it. For me, verse verse 11 might be the, the hardest to read. Sorry, verse 10, may his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. There's a similar strong language all the way down through verse 14, where now his his father and mother are remembered before God. These verses certainly gave me a lot of reason to wrestle this week. Let me share a few principles that I hope will help you wrestle with them as well. First, we have to remember the genre we are in. We are reading poetry. He'll continue in poetry, for example, starting in verse 22, when he describes himself in ways that seem exaggerated. He calls himself a locust. Maybe that's all he's doing here in verses 11 through 14, using extreme language for rhetorical effect. The loss of, of... Posterity and property were the worst punishments that Israelites could imagine, so maybe this is just his poetic way of saying terrible punishment, and, and I think that's, that's likely, but maybe not, so a second principle, his children begging, in verse 10, his wife, a widow, may, may simply be the result of his death. Verses 9, 10, 11 are simply the real effect when a father dies in his society. In our translation, it sounds like David is wanting these things, but but the Hebrew has more the sense that these things must happen. His days must be few. Because of his death, his sons must be orphans. His wife must be a widow. You know, when you think about it, we deal with this in our society as well. When we pray for justice, when we justly condemn criminals to prison, their wives and children suffer as well. These are the consequences of evil. Well, a third principle that might help the Old Testament understood that sins were generational. It may be that David here curses the family, father and mother, wife and children, because the assumption is that they are guilty as well. Where do you think the man learned this but from his mother and father? And where do you think his children got it but from him? He passed it on as well. They too hate God and his servant. And finally, fourth, a fourth principle to help us wrestle with these verses, all the curses of verses 9, 10, and 11, and on dim in the light of the last curse, verse 15. Yes, it is is terrible to be an orphan or widow. But decades of suffering poverty are nothing compared to verse 15. His final plea is for their sins to be continually be before the Lord. He is asking the holy and eternal God to never lose sight of their offenses against God. Not David. What had been temporal curses now extend into eternity forever. Not just an orphan and widow for years. But he is praying that they experience the full wrath of God's justice not only for this age but for all time. David is concerned that God's justice be upheld for God to show himself good in his unchanging opposition to evil. For all time friends the truth about evil is that it deserves proportional punishment because god is good evil deserves god's eternal opposition he goes on starting in verse 16 to argue for the proportionality of these curses that they correspond to the evil the man has committed. Look there at verse 16. It begins with a, a for giving reason for what has come before the curses. He starts by saying he did not remember to show kindness. Because he wasn't Kind. No, that's not what it means. NIV gets to the strength of it because he never thought of doing a kindness. Whatever he did, it was the opposite of kind. Rather, it says, he pursued the destitute and desolate to put them to death. I don't think this means he literally murdered them, but but whatever he did, he did it so that it might lead to their death. Verse 17 gives further reason. Because he loved to curse others. Let the same come upon him. He targeted the poor and needy. He didn't like blessings, so let it be far from him. Verses 18 and 19 show that the wicked man cursed so regularly that it could be described as literally his clothes. In other words, may he get what he constantly gave. Do you remember Jesus' summary of the law called the golden rule? Matthew 7.12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and prophets. Do you see the justice then in what David prays? Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Apply that to his enemy. He is a wicked accuser. This man has done no kindness, only cursed. So if this is what he has done to others, what does it mean should be done to him? That verse 6, a wicked accuser stands against him. That verse 17, curses come upon him. David's prayer here in Psalm 109 is an application of the golden rule. Evil deserves proportional punishment. Well, maybe you're like me and the gears start turning, okay. If the evil man is getting what is just, what he first gave according to the golden rule, then wait. Shouldn't David be cursed? He's cursing the man. Golden rule, what you do to others shouldn't be done to you. Well, thank you for your clarifying thoughts, friend. Here is an important thing to note about what David is doing in this psalm. It is the great dividing line of this prayer and the dividing line between wickedness and godliness. This whole section is summarized for us in verse twenty. When David asks that all what he has prayed to be the reward on his enemy, but underline with me reward from who? Reward from the Lord. This psalm is not a pledge of what David would himself do. Even though he is king and has the highest authority in the kingdom, this is not his prerogative. David, in Psalm 109, is most emphatically not cursing his enemy. He is not motivated by personal vengeance or petty angry. No, verse 4, he turns to prayer and asks God to act. You do this, Lord. Abraham prayed in Genesis 18, "...before God rained down fire from heaven on wicked men and their wives and children." Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So David, too, tur- turns to that just judge and calls on him to act, not what I will, but what you will. And so, whatever God does in answer to this prayer, the judge of all the earth will do what is just. So far from cursing the man, how is David treating his enemies? Well, that's what we considered first, verses 1 through 5. By loving them, by doing them good, by praying for them, by the golden rule, treating them as he would want to be treated. We'll think about that more in a moment, what that means for us. But first we need to consider why should God do any of this? Why should God answer David's prayer? We started by noting that this is the prayer of David. Yes, David is treating his enemies with love, but but still he's a sinner. In fact, he is a murderer. Why Why should God listen to him? Why should God act? Well, our third truth about evil, God acts against evil because he is good. Not because we are. God acts against evil because he is good. Not because we are. In the final verses. Starting in verse 21. The psalm makes its final turn in verse 21. With a a, but you. David here asks God to act. To deal with it. And on what grounds will David ask God to act? Remember. Verse 2, God told us, or sorry, David told us that his name is being discredited. Verse 5 told us that he, David, is acting in love. He's doing good. So how might verse 21 read? For my name's sake, God, because of my deeds of love, because I have been good. Well, as true as that might be, David knows it is not grounds for God to act. Verse 21, you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. It is for God's name's sake that he acts, because of his love and goodness, not to uphold the reputation of David, but because of his own holiness. Because of his own love in goodness. When David talks about himself in these verses, starting in verse 22, he only talks about his need and poverty. Verses 23 through 25, he uses images of of how temporary he is. Gone like a shadow in the evening. How weak and small he is. And how exhausted he is he has no stature and so in verse 26 the only sure basis for his appeal is God's steadfast love his covenant faithfulness save me according to your steadfast love what David contributes what we all contribute is only the need for God to act So in verse 27, he expresses his desire that his accusers know that that God has acted in response to his prayer, make it clear that it is God, not David, who is vindicated. You, O Lord, have done it. And as for David, he is confident in verse 28 that God's blessings can overcome, however, his enemies curse him. So his future gladness is secure. And with that security, even when God is silent, David will speak up with praise and thanks while he waits. The the psalm closes in verses 30 and 31 with, with David's mouth now open, giving testimony to the people that God is indeed the God of his praise, right where he started. These verses are a fitting end to be sung by the congregation as David's par- private prayer is now a hymn for all the people. So we too now sing with confidence in the fact that God saves the needy. And our prayer will be heard. He will act as just judge. So we pray and wait while doing good. Those are our three truths, brothers and sisters, of evil. How then should we respond when we face evil? We'll summarize summarize it with two helps in the face of evil. Two helps this morning in the face of evil. First, pray and wait while doing good. Our first help, pray and wait while doing good. I think you can summarize this psalm into three duties seen in that sentence. Pray and wait while doing good. You know, Jesus instructs us not to hate our enemies, but to pray for them. Matthew five forty four. he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. David, in our psalm, is an example of this. Verse 4, he loves his persecutors and prays for them. Christian, when, when you were God's enemy, he loved you. He was good to you. He did not write you off. When you deserved death and wrath, he gave you his beloved son to rescue you. The frank truth is the only way anyone can love an enemy like David does here, like Jesus calls on us to do, a slanderer, an attacker, even an assaulter, is first by receiving love from Christ. We love because He first loved us. And we endure in difficult love by being kept in the love of God. The fountain of our love for enemies is first God's fount of love for us that never runs dry. And that love moves us to then pray for our enemies. To pray for enemies. The natural question, though, is is what are we to pray? Can we pray curses like these on our enemies? Well, I would put it this way. The followers of Jesus can and should pray for God's justice to be applied to the unrepentant wicked. Let me say that again. The followers of Jesus can and should pray for God's justice to be applied to the unrepentant wicked. What's the key word there? Well, maybe it's justice. Maybe it's can and should. I'd say it's unrepentant. This whole psalm assumes the sinner has demonstrated a refusal to repent. Remember that odd phrase in 1st John 5 16 the beloved apostle is in the middle of telling us to pray for God to give life to those in sin but then says there is sin that leads to death I do not say that one should pray for that what is this sin that leads to death that the apostle John tells us not to pray for unrepentant sin Sin that is resolutely rejecting God, that that is chronic in its disobedience to God's commands and is is persistent in its hatred for God's people. Saints, it would be unjust of God to forgive unrepentant sin. So when we pray for justice on evil men, we can pray for them to first repent, but if they will not for God to bring swift justice... Pray and wait. Paul picks up this teaching in Romans 12, where he tells us in Romans 12:19, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Paul tells us to never take vengeance into our own hands, but leave it to the wrath of God. And we don't know when that will come. God is patient. So we pray and wait. Actually, brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we can pray for justice as we wait is to pray for our government. First Peter and, and Romans 13 both teach that God has given the state to punish evil. In fact, Romans 13.4 calls the state an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So no, vengeance is not yours, it's God's, and he uses the state to do it. So pray, brothers and sisters, for good attorney generals, for just sentencing. Pray that God would use temporal curses of our state to bring justice. As we think about the globe, for example, I think it's not wrong to pray for Russian soldiers in Ukraine to fail. And even, I think, for the just death of Vladimir Putin. And pray in all that, not as I will, but as you will. Pray that the just judge of all the earth would uphold justice, not only in the courts of this world, but in his eternal judgment. Well, we pray, we wait. Paul goes on in Romans 12 to tell us then to do good. Picking it up in Romans twelve twenty. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think this means for those Ukrainian Christians that as they pray that the Russian soldiers would fail, that Putin would die, that they might feed, clothe, give drink to the soldiers that oppose them. Just like David, we are to love and do good to our enemies even as we pray for justice, to do practical works of kindness if you can. Pray and wait while doing good. Our first help in the face of evil and our second help in the face of evil, Jesus suffered the curse our evil deserves. Jesus suffered the curse our evil Evil deserves. I honestly wish we could spend the full hour just on this. I leave it for last, so it's last on your mind as we conclude. May this last thought permeate all that you think about Psalm 109. There is a temptation to consider Psalm 109 as, as sub Christian, as if it's the dross. Floating at the top of the Old Testament to be scooped off and disposed of when Christ comes. But, my friends, it is deeply anchored to the entire structure of the hope of the Bible. It is the revelation of Christ. To lose it would be to lose a revelation of our Savior. First, and and most simply, it is a prophecy fulfilled in the life of Christ. We thought about this earlier in our, our reading from Mark 14. Even though this psalm lacks any indicators that it is predicting the future, that is how the apostle Peter read it. How Mark recorded it. Peter quotes Psalm 109, verse 8, the curse that another would take his office as being fulfilled in Judas. Because of his death... Another needs to take his office as apostle. In fact, Peter there in Acts 1 quotes both of the two major imprecatory psalms, Psalm 69 and 109, as both fulfilled in the death of Judas. So when we read the imprecatory psalms of David, calling down curses of God on his enemy, we should think of them being fulfilled not only in the life of David, but as a pattern that is fulfilled in Jesus Judas pursued the Davidic king to death. And his proportional punishment is God's justice. Just what we see here in Psalm 109. Consider this, what we read of in Mark 14. Isn't it amazing that at the Last Supper, not one of the disciples knew who would betray Jesus? Are they just pretending like they don't know, but they're all whispering? It's really Judas. No. No, obviously that means that, that Judas was adept at hiding his, his theft. But what is more amazing is what it says about Jesus. Re- remember, John six sixty four 64 tells us, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. His entire ministry, he knew how it would end with Judas. But despite that knowledge... In three years of intimate 24-7 ministry, Jesus' love to Judas was no different than it was to any of the other 11 disciples. No disciple had any reason at all to suspect Judas based on how Jesus had treated him. They were dumbfounded when it turned out to be Judas. Truly, Psalm 109 verses 1 through 5 is fulfilled in Jesus who was unfailing in his good, in his love, in his continual prayer for Judas. Even if Judas proved to be the unrepentant, wicked enemy of Jesus. Jesus tells of his cursed fate in Mark 14.21, what we read earlier. He says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe, cursing to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Because God is just, his sin will be before the Lord continually. In John 16, Jesus calls Judas the son of destruction. The one foretold by Psalm 109 who would be destroyed. And friends, all that is true and amazing. It speaks wonders of God's love, his goodness in Jesus. But I said I, I could spend a full hour on this. So I mean it. The full picture is much more than just predict, predicting Judas's absence in the office of apostle. When when you think of sins getting cursed by God, what do you think of? What chapter of the Bible do you think of? Sins getting cursed by God. I hope you think immediately of Genesis 3. The conflict that we see in Psalm 109 starts all the way in the beginning. When God cursed Satan for sin he promised, Genesis 3, 15, that there would be enmity between his descendants and the descendants of Eve. That ultimately, one offspring would come that would be attacked by Satan, but would ultimately deal a fatal blow to Satan's head. And so, the rest of the Old Testament traces those two lines. Satan's line opposing the righteous line of Eve. Starting with Cain, killing Abel through Joseph, through Moses, through David, and then the prophets. The line of Eve suffers from the line of Satan. The seed of the woman is consistently persecuted, opposed, and even killed by the seed of Satan. And do you know what the Hebrew word Satan means? Accuser. The word that shows up time and time in Psalm 109 opposed to the Davidic king, Satan, accuser, a little Satan, lying like their father opposed to the chosen line here in Psalm 109. This psalm is about so much more than simply Judas betraying Jesus. It is the whole story from beginning to end of Satan, the accuser, seeking to destroy the line of Eve now through the family of David. It's about the eternal hope started in Genesis 3.15 that God will stand at the right hand of the nevi to save his soul from the eternal condemnation he deserves. Friends, we have to remember that all of us are guilty of the evil that deserves condemnation. The Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn puts it so well. If only it were so simple. If only they were evil people. Somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Satan, our accuser, wears curses as a garment. He calls out for us to receive the judgment that the evil of our hearts rightly deserve. Our sin deserves to be continually before the Lord, never blotted out. For all who continue in their opposition to God and His servant, the curses you, your sins, deserve are coming. God is good and and all evil deserves proportional punishment including yours. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He died as a sinless substitute and went into the grips of Satan's power and death and sprung free that we might be rescued. Now Satan's curses will come back on him. Jesus took on himself all the curses that our sins deserve. When tried by windful, wicked men, he was found guilty. Verses 6 and 7. His days were few. Verse 8. Caught off from the land of the living in our place. He truly, verse 22, was pierced in heart by the soldier's spear. Bearing the just wrath of God against all sins. You know, the judgment day that David hoped for was delayed. Jesus came first to put away sins, not to condemn the world, but so that the world, any believer who repents and trusts in Christ, might be saved through him. He has split judgment day in half. If you are in Christ, if Christ is at your right hand to save you from the accuser, who would condemn your soul from death, then justice has already come. The verdict of the final day has already been announced for you. By faith and repentance you are forgiven in Christ. The eternal and ultimate justice that David hoped for is yet to come. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will repay each person according to what he has done. So I ask where we begin, how will you respond to evil? Will you despair? Will you take vengeance? Saints, the call of God's word with David and all the saints of God is to pray and wait while doing good with confidence that Jesus suffered the curse that our evils deserve. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Our heavenly Father, we give you great thanks. We praise you this morning in the midst of the throng because you have sent Christ to be at our right hand, that he would stand at our right hand, the needy to save our souls from the condemnation that our sins deserve. Father, we pray in the face of great evil, not only everywhere in our world, but done against us and in our hearts, Lord, that we would pray and wait while doing good with the confidence that Christ our Savior suffered the curse that our evils deserve, that we might be called just in him. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, in a moment we will have a chance to respond to God's word, to give him thanks and praise in the midst of the throng. But I would encourage you to spend just a moment in silent reflection considering the justice that evil deserves, that it will one day meet when Jesus comes again. Please take a moment of silence.